though, to see the gospel in a couple of distinct elements, two different ways. One is that the gospel saves us, and that it does, it really, really does. Jesus' death in our place has made full payment for our debt of sin. We are saved from God's right wrath towards us and towards our sin because of what Jesus has done in satisfying God's holiness at the cross. The gospel has saved us. The second element of the gospel, which is really, really important to see also, is the gospel is a gospel of transformation. The gospel changes us. It saves us and it changes us. We're not just saved and left as it is. God loves us so much that He also wants to change us and transform us. We see this here picked up in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, you can put the word gospel in if you wanted to, are being transformed, changed, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's transformational. The gospel changes us. It's working deep down within us. Change. We see the glory of the Lord through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we keep looking upon Jesus through the gospel, the Holy Spirit works in us change. We call this ongoing sanctification, if you want a big sort of uh, Christian word. It's a great word, though. We are being set apart from sinful living, and we are being renewed now in gospel living. It's a continuous work of transformation taking place in our lives over the duration of our lives. That change will not stop until we breathe our last. It's gospel transformation. The Spirit, through the gospel, is bringing change in us to become more like Jesus Christ. <coughs> Sorry, there'll be a few coughs for that, I think. And this is what we see here in this passage in Philippians. Paul was impressing upon Theodia and Synergy and also the Philippian church the transforming power of the gospel. He's asking that they will be shaped by the gospel and let it work out through their lives, through every aspect of their lives. And this is precisely God's will for all of his created beings. He's recreating us back into the image of Jesus Christ, the perfect human being. God's intention is for the Spirit to work in us to produce this change. The Holy Spirit gives us this power and then commands us to change and even brings servants along on the road as well. Brilliant. The Holy Spirit gives us this power and then commands us to change. Um, I'm no Greek scholar here, but I do have the help of the um, Greek language on my computer program at home. And in the original language that Paul wrote this in nearly 2,000 years ago, there are three what we call imperative verbs. Now, I'm not trying to get too technical here, but it does actually help to understand what's taking place here. Do you know what the word imperative means? It's imperative that you do as I say. It might be where you might use this word imperative. In other words, it's urgent that you do as I say. And there are three imperatives here in this passage that are linked with like a command verb. It's a command that Paul states in this passage. The first imperative verb or command verb, he says here, is this. Uh, in verse 4 it says rejoice. The second one is be reasonable. And the third command verb or imperative verb is do not be anxious. 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these actions, these command verbs or these imperative verbs, as, it was, uh, as we see, as part of the Spirit's work in transforming us and changing us, these actions are not options. The Holy Spirit is actually commanding us to rejoice, be reasonable, and not to be anxious. The Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to write this particular way for a gospel-centred life. Let's try and help set the backdrop here of this passage as we think about these command verbs, these imperative verbs, and the way the Spirit transforms us through the gospel. In verses 2 and 3, we meet a couple of uh, ladies there, Euodia and Sinchi. And it's obviously from this passage, these ladies had a disagreement. We don't know what that is. The Bible doesn't give us any background there. Paul's telling them to agree. So obviously to agree, they must have had some disagreement about something. I actually do feel for these women, though, because this letter was written openly to the church. So you can imagine a letter being written as an I.O. And also, Todd and Laurel, can you please agree? <laughs> Great. Oh, everybody knows about it now. Yeah? You've got to feel for these women, perhaps, here. Anyway, it also shows us that even though back then we thought maybe they were much better people than us, human history has always struggled with tensions or dramas in life. Sin has always created problems. So um, we can sort of, well, okay, we've got problems in the church today. Well, they had problems back in the church back then as well. Paul calls them to agree. And then he asks another person, called, we don't know the name, it's just called True Companion, to come alongside of them and to help them through that process. And then Paul moves on to these these imperative verbs or action command words which I think is easily linked here with this situation that's probably taking place in the lives of these uh, two ladies but it's also applicable to us today here 2018, 2000 years later we can apply those same action commands to our lives as well so let's have a look at them now as we think about the spirit taking the gospel and transforming us First one here is rejoice. Rejoice. It comes out in verse 4 with this imperative command, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Now you probably remember a chorus about that, don't you, many, many years ago. A few heads nodding out there. Great chorus. Rejoice. This is not optional. It's not optional. This is actually a command. The Holy Spirit calls us to rejoice. Now you might say, Todd... How can I rejoice my life when my life is the way it is? My life is marked by emotional and physical pain and all sorts of grief. How am I supposed to rejoice in that? I feel emotionally bad in my relationship. I have this physical suffering that seems unending and the Holy Spirit commands me to rejoice. I can imagine you earlier saying... How am I supposed to rejoice when this synergy keeps getting in my face? You're telling me to rejoice? Perhaps it might help us to understand here a difference between rejoicing and joy in comparison with in comparison to happiness with our circumstances that might be dictating things at that particular time. A difference here between rejoicing or joy and happiness. Often our happiness will be a result of the circumstances we might find ourselves in. You might have uh, just handed back an assignment, or got an assignment, sorry, handed back to you, or you've just had an exam recently, you get the results back, and you got 92%. How do you think you'll feel? Very happy. You'll feel very happy about that. But just imagine if you handed that assignment in, or you sat that exam and you got the results back, and the score was 32%. How would you feel? 
not very happy. You probably feel a bit disappointed, probably feel a bit sad, wouldn't you? It's not quite what you were hoping for. What's happened there is those circumstances have dictated how we feel. Now, a good result made me feel really good. A lower result, I didn't feel so good at all. The circumstances dictated there the happiness. Joy, though, is different than happiness where circumstances dictate to us how we may feel. Joy is different. Even though I worked really hard, as hard as I possibly could, and I got 32% back from my assignment, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Why? Because I know Jesus still loves me. And Jesus still holds my life in his hands. Because of Christ, I understand my life isn't ultimately found in this world in achieving success in every possible thing I do. There's a difference here. And the difference is that joy is based in our state of mind, not our circumstances. Sure, the circumstances weren't good, because I got a poor result, and initially that doesn't make me feel much so good. But my state of mind kicks in and says, okay, this is not my life in the big picture. My life is hid with Christ in God. My life is not dictated to by my current circumstances. Joy, then, is the state of our mind, what we know. What we know that far surpasses our circumstances. And this is precisely what Paul is saying here when he says, Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in what you know about Him. Rejoice in what He's secured for you. Rejoice in what He's doing through you. And I can imagine the Philippians thinking about this as Paul says that, and they can recall even some of the things that Paul has said here in this letter that he's written to the Philippians. He said this to them in chapter 1, verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Actually, before that he says, thank, I thank God because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Rejoice, Paul says, in the fellowship <coughs> or the partnership that Jesus Christ has called you into. Rejoice in the community of believers that love Christ and love me. Rejoice in the encouragement that I receive from the community of believers. Rejoice in the Lord because of He's called me into this fellowship, this community of other like-minded believers. In Christ, I can rejoice in that despite my circumstances. Paul's also said this in chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Rejoice. Rejoice in the humility of Christ. Rejoice in that. Rejoice that he would come as a servant and take my place and die my death on that cross. Rejoice in the cross of Christ for my salvation. They can think of all the terrible circumstances they may be going through, but they can think back to this and they can rejoice in the Lord. This is not ultimately my home. Paul's also told them this in chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake... I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul saying, rejoice in the treasure of Christ revealed into your life. Rejoice in the fact that you know Jesus Christ, the sovereign creator of the universe. He is the king. He knows you and you know him. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in the Lord. If we reflect upon some of those things, we really shouldn't have to be commanded to rejoice, should we? If we we just grasp that, what Jesus has secured for us through the gospel. Contemplate the gospel and rejoicing should naturally come out of us when we see what Christ has done for us. I can imagine Paul here saying, Euodia and Syntyche, rejoice in Christ. Rejoice in the gospel. Rejoice in what he has done for you. The second command verb here, or imperative verb that Paul calls us to, is to be reasonable. To be reasonable. Chapter 4, verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is at hand. The gospel shapes us to be reasonable people. This word also may be translated, if you've got the NIV or something else, to be gentleness as well. We should be gentle people who are transformed by the Spirit. Reasonable people, gentle people. Perhaps you've got a friend who's a mile behind their work schedule. They've got stuff stacked up in the ceiling they just haven't gotten to yet. And they're coming in on a Saturday to get it done. And I ask you, could you just come in and help me as well just to try and nail down some of this work and clear off the desk? You think to yourself, Saturday, I don't have to, it's my day off. Actually, you got yourself into this mess, you better just go and sort yourself out and I'm going to do my own thing. The gospel shapes us to be reasonable people, gentle people, who defer our right to others. I love this person. Okay, They may have made a few mistakes, they may have put themselves way behind the work, but the gospel shaped me to be reasonable. To be gentle, to help me see life isn't all about me, it's actually about Jesus and others, and then I fall into line after that. So then I'll perhaps go and help this person, even though they may not deserve it in any way at all, because I'm reasonable and I'm gentle of heart, I want to actually go and let the gospel work through me to help that person and clear their work It's a softening work that the Holy Spirit does through us in the gospel. But what Paul says here in Romans, which are like the marks of a Christian character. Romans chapter 12 says this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one, no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's a glorious picture there in those two verses, isn't it? Chapter 12 of Romans comes after 11 chapters of Paul actually unpacking the gospel in our lives, and now says, like, from chapter 12 onwards, this is what the gospel looks like. This is how the gospel now works out through our lives. And what's he say there? It's someone who's gentle and reasonable towards others. He says, live in harmony. Associate with the lowly. 
do what is honourable and live peaceably with all. Live peaceably with all. This is the work of the gospel with the Holy Spirit changing us to be reasonable, to be gentle. It's a work that deep down inside of us. Here's the third one that Paul says in this passage here, uh, reflecting on you over and synergy. And the Philippians and us today as well. He says this in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let the requests be made known to God. Do not be anxious about anything. That's the command of the Holy Spirit here in this passage. It's probably a whole sermon on that verse alone. Uh, we're not going to do that today, maybe another time. But anxiety is a killer, isn't it? Anxiety is a killer. Anxiety can paralyse you or your eye with fear and you just can't seem to shake it. A situation comes along that doesn't quite fit into our comfort levels. And sometimes you get the simplest things like a car repair bill that you need to pay. And you just haven't got the money at that time to pay the bill. It's amazing how a simple thing like that can begin to produce anxiety within people. Can be bigger things. Maybe the place where you work is experiencing a slowdown and you see people all around getting put off work. And all of a sudden your number unfortunately comes up. You're off work as well. Your job's the next to go. And that can cause major anxiety. Major anxiety that happens. What does anxiety do to us? It sort of puts us into a tailspin, doesn't it? You see those planes when they get shot down, those war movies, they sort of just go spinning down out of control? That's what anxiety is doing in our minds. It sort of puts us in this tailspin. We can only imagine the worst will happen to us. Anxiety totally messes with our head and we can't think straight when this comes in. Situations or circumstances come along and it just freezes us and at night time we can't shake these thoughts out of our head about the, the very worst will happen to us. We are commanded here to not be anxious. Don't be anxious. And again, when the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write this verse, we've got to also understand that the Spirit will give us this power to not let anxiety overwhelm us and overcome us. It's not a command without power. Paul's not writing this thinking, oh, well, now, yeah, you've got to do it, and then it's left to your own resources. The Holy Spirit comes in and gives us that power to not be anxious. What does anxiety reveal about us? I think it reveals what we really are putting our trust in in life. If you get inside of anxiety, it begins to actually reveal to us what am I really putting my trust in in life? If we're putting our trust in making sure we've always got a full-time job to make me feel secure, then if I lose my job, I'll feel insecure and anxious thoughts will come in. My trust in full-time employment. Or, if I'm putting my trust in good health so that I feel secure in life because I've got good health, well, then if my health begins to fail and things don't go so well, then I'll feel insecure and probably anxiety or anxious thoughts will begin to come in. And how do we feel all these what-ifs? It reveals what we're trusting in. The Holy Spirit, though, through the Gospel, reveals God to us in an increasing way. And what we see about God is that He is absolutely sovereign. 
is absolutely sovereign in every situation, every circumstance in our lives and across this world. He's created this universe by His Word and He sustains this universe by His Word. Now, like Him or loathe Him, I'm not talking about God now, but like Him or loathe Him, President Trump may be the most powerful person in the world. You can sort of see he does some pretty crazy things at times, but he's, a very, he's the most powerful person in the world. He is completely under the sovereign powers of God. You might think, well, he can do anything he can. And he, he can do anything he likes as well. But he still sits under the sovereign power of God. God's power rules over all things and in all situations without fail. Without fail. The Holy Spirit takes this gospel truth and actually begins to unpack this in our hearts and our minds. And he takes this truth here out of Romans chapter 8, a familiar verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Paul says there, and we know. And we know. It's fixed in our minds. This is what we know. This is what we know about God. We know, we believe, we've put our trust in God that He is working in every situation in our lives for our good. Paul says there, all things. That doesn't say just the good things. He says all things. Job loss, failing health, difficult financial seasons, painful relationships. You can put anything you like in all things because it's all things. Because we know that God is working in all things very good and that we can trust Him, we don't have to be anxious. He holds sovereign power in every circumstance, in every situation. Our hope and our trust is not in our circumstances, because a lot of that is out of our control. Our hope and our trust is absolutely in God, and we know that through the gospel, He is sovereign in absolutely every way with unlimited power, and He never fails. So if He says all things will work out for our good, we trust that, and we believe that, and we don't have to be anxious. Sure, though, anxious thoughts will come. That doesn't mean those anxious thoughts won't come. Yes, they will come. No question about that. And it's not wrong that the anxious thoughts come. I mean, you can't help a thought that comes into your mind as such, when it sort of first enters in. But you can do something about that thought, other than letting it take root in your mind, and letting it become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. You can do something about that. And Paul actually alludes to that here in verse 6. He says, In everything by prayer... Let your requests be made known to God so that those anxious thoughts will be held in check. Sure they'll come, but, but everything in prayer, Lord, I'm having trouble with those thoughts to come back again. It may be recurring things. But the Holy Spirit gives us the power here to overcome those anxious thoughts by calling upon that power to work in our lives and do that. And what's the result then that we see here since verse follows on and trusting God with our lives and not being anxious? We get this golden verse here in verse 7. 
and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It really is that golden verse, isn't it? The peace of God that surpasses all understanding. It comes in an unexplainable way. It really, really does. You can't explain this peace because your circumstances as such haven't changed. But yet you feel differently now through those circumstances. A peace has now come upon you. That despite what's happening around about me, I actually feel peaceful and not anxious. It becomes a really, really fantastic witness to the gospel pair in our lives, to people actually who know what we're going through, and they can see and say, how can you be so peaceful? You can't. When such a disaster has happened in your life, becomes a glorious, glorious witness. This peace, it guards our heart and it guards our mind from these anxious thoughts, not from coming, but it guards these anxious thoughts from actually taking hold of us. Yes, they'll come. We pray and when God's peace comes, it begins to guard us so those anxious thoughts can't take hold and grip our lives. So there's three imperative commands there that uh, Paul has given to Euodia and Syntyche and the Philippian church and for us here today in Shepherd and 2018. This is gospel power that the Spirit works deep within us. Can you imagine if Euodia and Syntyche applied themselves to the Spirit's work here? Think about that for a moment. They've got a disagreement. Both of them have come into the conversation with their own agenda. This is where the disagreement's come. I think she's got her agenda and she's got her agenda and the two agendas aren't matching up. They both think they're right and they both want things their way. That's how they've come into this situation. What would the result be, though, if they applied themselves to rejoice in Christ and the Gospel? What would the result be, though, if they came being reasonable and gentle? What would the result be, though, if they didn't get anxious over their perceived right what they think they should have got out of that? What if they weren't getting anxious about that? I think this understanding of the Gospel would totally change their whole outlook on whatever was taking place between those two ladies. All of a sudden, their perspective would change. They would say, what on the earth are we disagreeing over this cup of water for? Who cares whether it's in a brown cup or in a pink cup? Why are we disagreeing over that? All of a sudden, their whole perspective would change. As they thought about rejoicing in the gospel, as they thought about being rich and gentle to the Spirit's power, and think, let's not ever bother getting anxious over our perceived rights there. It's a glorious thing, friends, when the Holy Spirit takes the gospel and works deep down within us. It's a glorious thing. It's a mighty work to see the gospel with its power affect change in our lives. It's totally right that God commands us to rejoice. It really, really is. It's totally right. Who doesn't want to rejoice through life? Who would rather have a fight through life than rejoice? Now, probably some people might, but probably not in the right mind, but you would much rather go through life rejoicing other than with tension and fighting. And it's totally right that God commands us to be reasonable and gentle. Would we rather be unreasonable, rough and hard through life? What results will we see come from that? Nothing but adverse results. It will achieve more tension and more strife if we want to go through life being unreasonable. 
And it's totally awesome. God commands us to not be anxious. It really is. Well, we'd rather be filled with tension and worry. Is that how we want to live life? Who really wants to live life with ongoing stress? It's right that God commands us here not to be anxious. We need to think about Paul here as well, because he's writing this and thinking, well, Paul, who are you to sort of write this, you know? That's not the situation. He's writing for a very hard place, very difficult circumstances. He's been unfairly put in prison. He's actually got every reason not to rejoice. He's got every reason to be rough and hard. He's got every reason to be anxious about his life. He's in a Roman prison. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. He's got a whole stack of dramas. That's the position that Paul writes this from. But Paul's not like that, is he? He's not hard. He's not anxious. Why is that? Why is Paul able to write like this in this really, really hard place? Because Paul gets the gospel. Paul gets the understanding of the gospel, the Holy Spirit has worked deep in his life. Paul is experiencing the work of the Spirit through the gospel, and he can see its power working through his life. Paul has met Jesus, and he is radically changing Paul's life for the good. Paul gets that. He can write from these really adverse circumstances and say, this is what can be achieved. This is what the Spirit wants to do in our lives. But Paul isn't arguing here with Euodia and Syntyche, and not arguing with the Philippians, and he's really not arguing with us in that type of a tone here. It's a very sort of um, urging or pleading tone. He says there to Euodia and Syntyche at the start, he's entreating them, or he's pleading with them to agree and to yield to the Spirit's work in their lives. Paul, with deep joy himself, is urging the Philippians and us today to come and go deeper in the Gospel to allow it to work deeply in our lives so that we can experience the life that Jesus has called us into through the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's not a railing tone, it's, it's, a, it's come. It's come and, and uh, let the Spirit work in your lives through this power of the Gospel. Can you imagine what life would be like if we were marked by a Spirit rejoicing about us? Can you imagine that? If there was a Spirit rejoicing about every single person here connected to Exchange Church. Can you imagine what life would be like if we were marked by a spirit of being reasonable and gentle with each other? Can you imagine what a life would be like where anxiety doesn't take a grip on us and cripple us? Can you imagine taking that sort of life that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our life through the gospel? Can you imagine taking that into your marriage? (coughs) Rejoicing, reasonable, peaceful. Can you imagine taking that sort of life into your family relationships, rejoicing, reasonable, peaceful. Can you imagine taking that life wherever you go as someone who's rejoicing, as someone who is reasonable, as someone who is at peace? Can you imagine a whole community displaying those traits of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Wouldn't that community look attractive? Wouldn't that group of people who are filled with God's Spirit, living out the Gospel, be a peaceful community? Wouldn't you want to be part of that community if you saw that working out through their lives? Wouldn't there be something about that that says, what have they got? How can they rejoice? How can they be reasonable? How can they be at peace when such difficult things happen with them? 
And this is precisely, this is precisely what Jesus wants to do here in our life and in the life of Exchange Church here in Shepparton. The Holy Spirit wants to work out the gospel through our lives for visible change to make Jesus look really, really attractive and powerful. Because that's what it really is. It's gospel power on display. It's the power of the gospel working out through our lives and becoming a visible representation of the power that is to change our lives. And it really is incredibly vital today for the church to display that. Incredibly vital. News media today are really, really quick to find and air all the bad media reports they can find about Christianity. I don't know if anybody saw early this week um, that Prosperity Pressure announced he was asking for $54 million for his followers to buy a new jet. I heard that and I just felt terrible about that. I thought, what a blight on Christianity. Someone's trying to urge you to give me $54 million so I can buy a new jet so I can fly around the world. He covers it by saying he's going to spread the gospel wherever he goes. I thought, what a dishonouring to Christ. When we see that. What do the unsaved think when they see that? They're all about money. They're all about money. It's all they want. Just want that money. We've got to tell them a better story. We've got to show them a better story. We've got to take the gospel and its power working out through our lives and partner with the Holy Spirit and develop and let this character change to show the world a better story. And I believe that when we show them that better story, which is the Spirit working the gospel out through our lives, it will create gospel opportunities. It will say something. Without us saying a word, our lives will begin to um, witness that there's something different about us. And it's vital today that we can show that as we look to be on mission. This is what we are in exchange. We are a church on mission to connect people to Jesus and to grow people in Jesus. And it's not really easy in the Western world we live in. But a life that reflects gospel power, empowered by the Holy Spirit, will give that. For all the bad press they may see about Christianity, they will not be able to refute a community living the way the Bible tells us to live. It will defeat all of their arguments. How can they possibly dismiss a community who are marked by rejoicing, who are marked by reasonableness, who are marked by peace and calm? No matter what happens, they're marked by these things. And friends, this life isn't beyond us today. These commands aren't impossible to live by. This is the transforming work and the transforming power of Jesus Christ. His gospel working deep down inside of us by the Holy Spirit. And it is possible because the gospel changes us. The gospel changes us. And the change it brings is brilliant. It is absolutely brilliant. And it should be gloriously attractive. Yes, man. Beautiful character as it were, only oozing out of us as we allow God's Spirit to work in and through us to produce this gospel change. Let's pray. Father, we uh, give you thanks and give you praise today as we just uh, look at this passage here in uh, Philippians. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you today uh, for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that comes and indwells us and brings this gospel power into our lives. And Lord, it causes us to do things that are unexplainable, supernatural. It gives us the peace that surpasses understanding. 
Father, we ask and pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us afresh. Fill us with that gospel power to be people who rejoice no matter what the circumstances are in our lives. Rejoicing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please give us the power today to be reasonable, gentle people, not demanding our rights, but deferring our rights so that we can allow Jesus to work out through our lives. Holy Spirit, please help us today to be people who are not anxious. Help us when those challenging situations come and those anxious thoughts begin to invade our mind. Please help us to just reflect again upon the sovereign, glorious power of God who works all things together for our good. Help us to see that and help us to believe that. And let that peace begin to guard our hearts and guard our minds. And Lord, we pray that through all of this, we really pray that through all of this, Lord, that you would grant us opportunities to actually give the reason for the hope that lies within us. That this would create the gospel opportunities where we can share the good news of Jesus Christ. That we can give this community a better story. A story of eternal perspective. A story of real change. Father, help us today. Help us, Holy Spirit. Let this gospel be worked deep, 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 deep down in our hearts, I pray. And let it produce that change we ask for the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask it in His name. Amen. <coughs> Any questions on that passage there today? Before we close with a song. Can I say something? Yep. I, I totally agree with you. Like I've had circumstances like the young guy that used to go to church and his life's gone completely 180. And I put my hope in God for that young man. And I've noticed the weight lift off. I don't worry about him anymore. I'm anxious for him. But he's in God's hands. But I will be honest at times I don't trust God. I have a strong moral sense of fairness. If you really pick up the bones sometimes. And I know this is the wrong way of thinking, but I find it a real strong in Christ. I've got a roof under my head. I've got food on the table that I hope you can love me. You've got people out in the bush that might not have a roof over their head, but they have food on their plate, they get sick and they're cold. And I struggle with the, okay, I can see why they can be anxious. I can see why they can quite easily blame God for. Uh, <coughs> oh, it's not God's fault, but I can quite see why God can blame, or they can blame God for that. Yep. And I, I find that uh, that's why sometimes I struggle with trusting God in that. So We all have struggles in life, don't get me wrong, we all, but some have got harder struggles than others. I, I, can't, I find it hard to trust God. Okay, you're looking under these guys better than you are these guys, that's not fair. Yeah, look, look, there's a lot of mystery, Jane, in um, God's providential work through this world. I mean, yeah. a lot of things we can't explain. I mean, sometimes, I'm not, I'm not making a general comment here, but sometimes hot soup, 